0: Well, hello, hello, my friends, and welcome to a very special episode of the Bible School Podcast. I'm your host, Ian Brown, and this is episode 30. 30 episodes in. That sounds absolutely crazy to me coming out of my mouth. I really had no idea where this podcast would go when I started it in um, April of last year, April 2020. But... God has been just so faithful since then. And pretty much every week, I talk to someone new who has been blessed by the show. So I just want to thank you out there in internet land and podcast land for coming on this journey with me. I am so excited for what lies ahead. Today on the podcast, I am answering some of your questions. I am reaching in to the proverbial mailbag and I am taking some of your questions. I thought this would be a fun thing to do for the 30th episode. If you would like uh, question and answer episodes to become a regular part of the show, then let me know. I'd be more than happy to do them as long as I am getting enough questions. You can email me at pod at gmail.com or Or you can also send me a voice message. Either way is great. And I'll put a link to both of those in the episode description for you, a link to the email, and a link uh, if you'd like to send me a voice message. Those will be in the episode description. As always, please consider subscribing to the podcast if you are not already. That way you never miss an episode. We're on Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, the Anchor app, Um, If there's another platform where you get your podcasts that I did not mention, then please uh, send me an email, bibleschooledpod at gmail.com. Let me know, and I'll do my best to add the podcast to your preferred platform. I know we're pretty much covered for uh, iPhone and Android users with uh, Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts and I know a lot of people listen on Spotify and Overcast as well. So uh, we're on the big ones, but you never know. Um, There's tons of podcast platforms out there. So if you listen to one that I am not aware of, that this show is not on, then yeah, just let me know and I'll get it on there. All right. That is it for the housekeeping. On to the fun stuff. On to your questions. The first question comes from a listener right here in the great state of Oklahoma, where I live. I live in Tulsa, for those of you who uh, do not know. But this person's question is in regards to a specific verse. They ask about Isaiah 54-7. And they write that they've always found this verse, Isaiah 54-7, they've always found this verse of scripture to be a bit Problematic. Other scriptures, such as Deuteronomy 31, 6 and Hebrews 13, 5, say that God will never leave nor forsake us. He will never leave nor forsake his people. Isaiah 54, 7, however, seems to say something different. It seems to be saying the opposite. And this listener wants to know how they can reconcile this seeming contradiction and if it even is a contradiction at all. So let me just read the verse here. And actually, uh, I'm going to start in verse 1 of Isaiah 54, just so we can get the immediate uh, immediate context here. This is going to be out of the New English Translation, or the NET Bible. Isaiah 54, starting in verse 1, it says, Shout for joy, O barren one who has not given birth. Give a joyful shout and cry out, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one are more numerous than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Make your tent larger, stretch your tent curtains farther out. Spare no effort, lengthen your ropes and pound your stakes deep. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your children will conquer nations and will resettle the desolate cities. Do not be afraid, for you will not be put to shame. Don't be intimidated, for you will not be humiliated. You will forget about the shame you experienced in your youth. You will no longer remember the disgrace of your abandonment. For your husband is the one who made you. The Lord, who commands armies, is his name. He is your protector, the Holy One of Israel. He is called God of the entire earth. Indeed, the Lord will call you back like a wife who has been abandoned and suffers from depression. Like a young wife. When she has been rejected, says your God. And here's the verse in question, verse 7. For a short time I abandoned you, but with great compassion I will gather you. So there's a couple of things going on here. It's important to note that the previous chapter is... Uh, Isaiah 53, obviously, but one of the famous uh, quote-unquote servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah 53 covers the atoning work of the suffering servant. And in view of that, the prophet announces and anticipates the restoration of Israel. And chapter 54 starts off here with Jerusalem being addressed as a woman who has been separated from her husband. And this isn't anything new. The language of marriage is used throughout the Bible, especially in the prophets, to describe the covenant relationship between Yahweh and the nation of Israel. And in the New Testament, uh, the language of marriage is used to describe the relationship, the covenant relationship between Christ and the church. So this is not all that uncommon. If you go back to the book of Exodus and read when the covenant is made at Mount Sinai, that uh, whole uh, that whole thing, that whole ordeal there uh, with the covenant being made at Sinai, that all reads very much like a marriage ceremony. Now, if you've ever read through the Old Testament, even just a, a cursory reading, then you know that the people of Israel had... A pretty big problem with idolatry. They kept trying to mix the worship of pagan gods along with the worship of Yahweh, or in some cases they even abandoned the worship of Yahweh uh, completely in favor of worshiping the pagan gods. And the Bible likens this issue, this problem that Israel had, to a married woman cheating on her husband committing adultery. Idolatry is spiritual adultery against god basically this is really picked up on by some of the other prophets ezekiel and hosea particularly hit this motif uh really really hard in their writings out and it's because of this repeated unfaithfulness that god uh, quote unquote abandons israel into the babylonian exile so does god ever abandon his people like this listener asked. Well, yes and no. One of the curses for Israel that we read in Deuteronomy uh, for not being faithful to their covenant, remember Moses said, you know, there will be uh, blessings if you keep the covenant and curses if you uh, forsake the covenant, if you violate the covenant. One of those curses for not being faithful to their covenant with Yahweh was that a foreign army would invade and carry them out of their land. God warned them about the consequences for the sin of idolatry, for violating the covenant. Um, And he gave them ample time to repent as well. This is very clear if you just read through the Bible. And we see that Israel would not repent. They didn't listen to the warnings and they did not repent when given the chance. They persisted in their sin And it just got to a point where justice had to be meted out. And this is poetically described as a husband abandoning his wife for being unfaithful. So really, here in Isaiah 54, the only reason God abandons his people for a time is because they abandoned him first with the sin of idolatry. But even with that, even though Israel has been abandoned by God for a time, the, the Babylonian exile was about 70 years. Um, even though that happened, Israel hasn't really been abandoned. Even though she has been abandoned, she hasn't really been abandoned. We get this sense as we read uh, these opening verses of Isaiah 54. And really, this this question is hitting on themes I talk about repeatedly On this podcast, the exile, the way that divine justice relates to the mercy of God, this should all sound pretty familiar to you if you listen regularly. God says to Israel even though you've been abandoned for a time, even though you've been exiled 70 years in Babylon as punishment for your unrepented sin, don't be afraid, don't despair. Because you will be regathered and you will be restored to the promised land. In fact, going back to the beginning of Isaiah 54, the scripture says that the children of the desolate one are more numerous than the children of the married woman. So, in this whole marriage, uh, <laughs> in this whole marriage metaphor, excuse me, God is the husband. In this whole marriage metaphor, God is the husband. The nation of Israel as a whole is the wife, and the people themselves, the actual Israelite people themselves as individuals, they are the children. And God says that even though the exile in Babylon was um, a very traumatic and painful experience for the Israelite people, ultimately they would become more numerous and more prosperous in their exile than they were even before, and they will bring that prosperity back with them to the land as they resettle. This is the big takeaway from Isaiah 54 7. The focus is not on God abandoning his people for a time because of their sin, abandoning them uh, to exile for a time because of their sin. The focus here is on God's faithfulness to his covenant people And even though he had to abandon them for a time in exile, he still kept them. That's the big takeaway. God still kept them. And his ultimate plans were for their good and for their prosperity, even though it didn't seem like it at the time. God, uh, his plans for his people were always for their good. And he promises to restore them. Now, if you go on reading Isaiah 54 after verse 7, Uh, the prophet makes a very very interesting connection between the exile and the flood so i'm going to read here in verse 8 through 10 isaiah 54 it says in a burst of anger i rejected you momentarily but with lasting devotion i will have compassion on you says your protector the lord as far as i am concerned This is like in Noah's time, when I vowed that the waters of Noah's flood would never again cover the earth. In the same way, I have vowed that I will not be angry at you or shout at you. Even if the mountains are removed and the hills displaced, my devotion will not be removed from you, nor will my covenant of friendship be displaced, says the Lord, the one who has compassion on you. So, God's anger burns against sin. And exile was a, a judicial act. The exile was an act of judgment meant to purge the sin and the rebellion from the people and draw out faith and repentance from the remnant. That was the purpose. And the restoration of the people to the land would signal that the time of judgment had passed and that a new beginning was approaching and this prophetic announcement is very similar to God's covenant with Noah on or in Genesis 9 rather it's as if God is saying once again I'm hanging up my bow in the sky the rainbow is reminiscent of a, a warrior's bow and arrow and God says I'm hanging up my warrior's bow in the sky it's as if God is saying that once again God makes a promise, and he seals it with an oath. And the last verse I read there, verse 10 of Isaiah 54, it gives us the nature of this promise. It's eternal. The nature of this promise is eternal. God's loyal love, his covenant of friendship, or other translations will say uh, his covenant of peace, it will outlast the mountains, and it will outlast the hills. This covenant isn't based on anything else other than the Lord himself, other than the character of Yahweh himself, whose nature is to show mercy. And we see partial fulfillment of this chapter when Israel is restored to the land under the reign of uh, the Persian king Cyrus. But beyond that, Isaiah here in chapter 54, he's glimpsing the new covenant established by the death, resurrection and ascension of Christ. He's tapping in to that prophetic anointing and he's seeing into the future and he's seeing and prophesying about the new covenant that we live in today that was established by the death, resurrection and ascension of Christ. And in this new covenant, we can rest assured according to Hebrews chapter 13, that Jesus will never leave nor forsake us as his covenant people. I know that was a mouthful. I know that was a bit of a long answer to that question, but uh, I hope it was helpful to understanding what that verse is all about. All right. The next question comes from a listener in my home state of Hawaii. Even though I uh, live and reside in Tulsa, Oklahoma now, uh, I was born and raised in Hawaii. Still have many, many family members there. Shout out to you guys. So this listener, they wrote in and they said that the topic of suicide had recently come up in a religion class at college. And the professor said, that according to the account of Samson in Judges chapter 16, according to that story, God approves or even condones suicide. And they say this because the Bible records Samson praying to God in Judges 16, saying, let me die with the Philistines. And of course, God grants that request. So this listener, they want to know if their professor is correct. Is this chapter saying that God approves of suicide? Is that a faithful interpretation of the story of Samson? Well, um no is the short answer. Um, the story of Samson absolutely does not give a divine stamp of approval on the act of suicide. If you read through the old testament you you very quickly get to the Ten Commandments. Exodus writes the second book of the Bible, 20 chapters into the second book of the Bible, you read the Ten Commandments, and one of the big ones is thou shall not murder. And suicide, by definition, is the murder of self. All life belongs to God, and only God has the right to take it. There are several stories of people committing suicide in the Bible that uh, you can go read for yourselves. You don't have the time to get into all of these stories here on the podcast, but um, in these stories of people committing suicide in the Bible, none of them are approved by God. Abimelech in Judges 9, Saul in 1 Samuel 31, Ahithophel in 2 Samuel 17, Zimri in 1 Kings 16 and Judas in Matthew 27, all of these people uh, committed suicide and none of them were approved of by God. Now, when God is establishing his covenant with Noah, capital punishment is actually included in it. And this is a grace covenant too. That's the crazy thing. The Noahic covenant is a grace covenant because it predates the giving of the law, just like the covenant with Abraham is a grace covenant because it predates the giving of the law. The Noahic covenant is a grace covenant because it predates the giving of the law. And in this covenant, uh, God institutes capital punishment for a theological Reason So way before the giving of the law, way before Exodus, way before the Ten Commandments and thou shalt not murder, way back in Genesis 9, God says that he will demand an accounting for the life of a human being from both animals and other humans. So if an animal kills a person or if A human being kills another person. He will demand an accounting for the life that was taken. And he invokes the Imago Dei as the reason for this. The Imago Dei, the image of God. Genesis 1, of course, says that man was made in the image of God. But Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6, let me read it here. It says, For your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal, and from each human being too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made mankind. So, the reason why murder is so bad, the reason why the taking of human life is so evil and horrific, and the reason why the punishment for murder is so steep, why it's so high, it's because we as human beings are image bearers. We bear the image of God. Whether someone is taking the life of another or taking their own life God considers that an attack on his own image, an attack on the sovereignty he has over human life. This is why I believe the the story of Samson is different from uh, the other stories I mentioned of people in the Bible committing suicide. Ahithophel, Abimelech, Saul, uh, Judas. Um, I believe the, the story of Samson is different because in the story of Samson... the the Israelites and the Philistines are at war, okay? The the Philistines, they were a very fierce and and warlike people. They were constantly fighting with the Israelites, and in Samson's time, the Philistines had actually subjugated the Israelites, and they were oppressing God's covenant people. And this is why God raised Samson up in the first place. This is why God blessed Samson with supernatural strength in order to bring the israelites out from under the philistine thumb and he does accomplish this to a degree winning many conflicts with the philistine warriors there was one one tiny problem though and most of you are already pretty familiar with this story i'm sure but the problem was that a samson fell in love with a philistine woman right the infamous Uh, the infamous and seductive Delilah she seduces Samson and gets him to tell her the secret of his great strength right the covenant he had with God was represented by his long uncut hair so Delilah cuts Samson's hair in his sleep And she hands him over to the Philistine leaders who then gouge out his eyes and uh, chain him up between two pillars in the temple of one of their pagan gods. And as the story goes, the Philistines, they throw this this huge shindig, this massive celebration, a big party to celebrate their victory over Samson, who had been a thorn in their side for quite some time. So Samson blinded and bound up, he prays for God to grant him divine strength one more time in order to push down the pillars that he is chained to, killing all the Philistines inside the temple along with himself. And uh, of course, God answers this prayer and Samson brings the house down. So the reason I don't think we should take this story to be a divine approval of suicide is because of the motive, because of the circumstances surrounding the event. Samson didn't take his own life as much as he sacrificed it. I'll say that one more time. Samson didn't take his own life as much as he sacrificed it. Samson's God-given purpose in life was to free his people free the israelites from philistine rule that was god's uh purpose for samson on the earth but samson's own mistakes put him in a position where he was not able to accomplish that pers- uh purpose he he was not able to do that because of His own mistakes. So, Samson saying, Let me die with the Philistines was a request that God granted so that more Philistines, the Bible says, were killed at his death than during Samson's life. God, in his mercy, granted Samson the strength to do what he did in order to yet fulfill his purpose of bringing freedom to the Israelites despite. His many mistakes that landed him weakened, blinded, and chained. So I contend that Samson did not commit suicide, he did not take his own life as much as he sacrificed it for his people, and because of that, we cannot, I repeat, we cannot take this story to be a divine stamp of approval on the act of suicide. God does not approve of suicide in any circumstances. Now, Catholic uh, dogma, if I'm correct, says that um, suicide, if, if a person commits the act of suicide, that automatically condemns them to eternity in hell. Um, the Bible does not teach that. that that's Catholic dogma. I do not believe that so uh, perhaps we can do an episode on that um in the future uh, talking about that a little bit more but i do not believe that if a person commits suicide even though it is a sin even though it is the murder of self even though god does not approve of that i do not believe it automatically condemns a person to hell if they have accepted jesus christ as their lord and savior and have called out to him in faith and repentance at some point In their life, I believe they're saved and I believe they go to be with Christ um, at their death, even though they've committed suicide. So I just wanted to throw that out there. I know uh, many people have uh, had very painful experiences with uh, family members or friends committing suicide. And I just wanted to make that clear that the Bible does not teach that suicide automatically condemns a person to hell. All right. Our third and final question for this special Q&A episode comes from a listener in the United Kingdom. Shout out to all you international people listening out there. This listener writes that where they live in the UK, the coronavirus lockdowns have been quite strict and more than ever the family pets in their household have become a source of joy and companionship. And they write that they've had pets all throughout childhood and for most of their adult life. Whenever one of these beloved pets have died, they've always comforted themselves with the thought that one day they would see them again in heaven. So this listener wants to know, is there any scriptural evidence that animals go to heaven when they die, or is it just a fantasy? Now, I have to say that this question hits home for me. So just this past year, um, last year in 2020, we had to put down our dog Molly. She was uh, quite old and had fallen into pretty bad health. And even before that, growing up, um, when I was a little boy, when I was a teenager, we had uh, two amazing golden retrievers at our house. and. I remember crying when both of them died, so I totally understand the incredible connection we have with our pets. We love them like part of the family, and indeed, they are part of the family. But will we see them in heaven one day? Well, uh, first, I think we have to define, or perhaps um, even redefine, what we mean by heaven heaven for the christian is uh, not our final resting place contrary to what many people think and i know that sounds um, surprising and if you want a good study on this there's a book called surprised by hope written by uh, a theologian and scholar named n.t wright so that that's an excellent excellent resource Um, highly recommend it but Um, Let me try to to explain it a bit. In the Bible, we read that um, God's presence was in the Garden of Eden, right? God came down to the Garden of Eden and he fellowshiped with Adam in the cool of the day. God's presence on earth was contained in Eden. And after the fall, God's presence on earth was in the tabernacle and in the Ark of the Covenant And then it was in the temple in Jerusalem. There at the temple, in a room called the Holy of Holies, is where the presence of God dwelt. It was where heaven and earth met. It was where heaven and earth came together. Heaven and earth came together where the presence of God was in the temple. But when Jesus died on the cross. The curtain that separated the holy of holies was rent into from top to bottom. And now the presence of God is not contained in a temple made by man, but the presence of God dwells in us as Christians. God builds his church we are the body of Christ and we as the church are the temple of the holy spirit as the apostle paul writes so god's present or his presence rather it dwells in his church and the place where heaven and earth meets now is not in a building in jerusalem but to, but it's it's in us the the place where heaven and earth meets now is in us as christians as the church. Now, a lot of people think the story that the Bible tells goes like this, creation, fall, and redemption. Creation, fall, redemption. But really, that's incomplete. The story of the Bible is creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Redemption, fall, redemption, new creation. So if you go back and and you read Genesis 1 and 2 very closely, you'll get the idea that God wanted Adam and Eve to spread the garden across the world. So from the beginning, God always wanted to bring heaven and earth together so that he can live with us. That was the original purpose of creation, that is the purpose of the new creation. And as Christians, we are called to join in on this heaven and earth project by spreading the gospel. In fact, uh, we ourselves are new creations. It is faith in the gospel that makes us new creatures, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5. And when we die as believers, we go to heaven where we await in the presence of Christ the future resurrection of our physical bodies, as detailed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, in the ultimate new creation, a heaven and earth combo, so to speak, where everything that is wrong in the universe is put right by God. And two people in the Bible were able to glimpse a vision of this new creation, heaven and earth combo the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 65, and the apostle John in Revelation 21. And these two passages are related to one another, um, and I'm going to read from both of them, starting with Revelation chapter 21. Again, this is the apostle John writing, quote, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Moving on to Isaiah chapter 65 now. Quote, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat, for as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now, from these texts, we can see that the end game for believers, for God's people, is not a disembodied, immaterial existence in eternity in some faraway spiritual plane called. Heaven, rather, heaven is where we will await the resurrection and the reconstituting and the transformation of all things, where God will create a new creation, heaven and earth combo, where we will be doing human things. There will be houses and vineyards and families and animals. From the text in Isaiah, we we see that there will be animals in this new creation. That much is clear. Whether or not these animals in the new creation include the pets we have in this life, unfortunately, the Bible does not say. However, we know that there is a, a special bond that develops between humans and animals when we care for our pets. That relationship becomes a part of us. And excuse me if this is too much of a stretch, but in a similar way, I think, when we respond in faith and repentance to the gospel, well, well, the Bible says that we are bonded uh, with God. The Bible says that we become in Christ, and when we are in Christ, we are kept by God and we're looked after, not only in this life, but also in heaven where we wait for the resurrection of the dead and for the ultimate new creation to be instituted. To be absent from the body is to be in the presence of God, as the Apostle Paul wrote. And Paul also wrote in 1 Corinthians 2 9 that no eye has seen, and no ear has heard, and no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. Now, this is just my speculation, but it may be. That when God looks after and takes care of us as his people, his covenant people who are in Christ, when God looks after us, when he takes care of us out of an abundance of grace, and just because he's so good, perhaps he also takes care of the things that we hold dear and love in this life, including the dogs, and the cats, and the hamsters, and the guinea pigs, and the birds, and whatever else. Again, I'm not speaking with any kind of certainty here. The Bible doesn't say anything on this subject one way or the other. However, we do know from Isaiah that when God creates the heaven and earth new creation combo, there will be animals there. That much is clear. And I suspect that among those animals in the new creation... One day, we might recognize a dog or a cat that was once our companion, an animal that we gave our love to in this life and who returned that love. That's just my speculation, but I don't see any reason why that couldn't or shouldn't be so. What I do know, however, is that once our spirits are present with the Lord in heaven, And once we obtain our physical resurrected bodies in the new creation, once all that happens, we won't be complaining. That I can say with absolute certainty. Well, that is it for this special question and answer episode. Thanks so much for listening. For all of you uh, day ones, all of you OGs out there who have been listening to the podcast from the beginning, Uh, I just want to say thank you for sticking with me, for coming on this journey with me. If this happens to be the first episode you've ever listened to, then I want to thank you as well for taking the time. I hope it's been a blessing to you. I hope you go back and listen to the past 29 episodes before this. I believe they'll bless you just as much. I've enjoyed so much making these uh, 30 episodes, and I'm looking forward to the next 30 and to whatever else God has beyond that. Again, if you want question and answer episodes to be a regular part of the show, uh, just let me know. I'll be more than happy to do them so long as I'm getting enough questions uh, regularly. You can email me at bibleschooledpod at gmail.com or send me a voice message. And again, the links for both of those will be in the episode description. All right, well, that is all for now. Until next time. Be blessed.